Well, if you will, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at two verses this morning, verses 11 and 12. But to give us some context, I'd like to read verses 11 through 25. There's a break in, uh, in 1 Peter here. There's a shift, which we see with the word beloved. So we're beginning a new section of the book. But before we read it, let me ask the Lord to bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Lord, You have chosen the reading and preaching of Your Word to soften our hearts, to convert us, to change us, and to grow us in Your grace. So Lord, we pray that by Your Spirit, You would go forth in our hearts and draw us closer to You, that You would give anointing both to the preacher and hearer alike. In the name of Jesus, Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and following. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme Or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should be put to shame. You should put to shame, rather, to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only, to the good and, uh, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is the gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin or are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to you, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Well, up, in, up until this point in First Peter, uh, Peter has been discussing uh, internal affairs, as it were, within the church. What has happened to us as born-again believers, born again by His mercy, by His grace... And the implications for those things of how we're to live together within the church. But there's a shift here in verses 2, 11 through 12. The the shift is away from the internal affairs of the church to how we are to live with those around us, specifically unbelievers. Indeed, these two verses, 11 through 12, serve as the theme verses as a summary of what is to come, really, for the last uh, third of the book here. You know, it's important to note that when Peter uh, writes to the churches in what is now called modern-day Turkey, 
He doesn't tell them to withdraw. He doesn't tell them to pull himself away from culture and society. He calls them to live in an incredibly ungodly context, an incredibly ungodly culture. He calls them to live there as salt and light, to be examples, to point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. This road isn't easier. Easy. Indeed, it would be easier if God just told us to seclude ourselves. Instead, he tells us to include ourselves. We've talked about how we're to live together as the body of Christ in love, earnestly loving each other, pursuing each other. And now Peter tells us that we are called to live honorable lives so that others may see our good deeds and be pointed to Jesus, Lord willing, eventually leading to their salvation. What's the context here? Well, the context here is as aliens and strangers. But he writes to believers here, to believers only. We know this from the word beloved. Beloved here for Peter means that his beloved, brothers and sisters in Christ, but more importantly, those who are beloved of the Lord, those who are loved by God and therefore part of the covenant community of faith. You know, just like the words in a huddle are meant for one team only, so too Peter here addresses one team, God's team, the church. They are engaged, we are engaged in a, in a match, a game, a contest, albeit one with eternal consequences. And he is giving the church its game plan of how they are to act on the field of life He has already talked about team dynamics of how they interact with each other, but now it's how you're going to interact with those on the field. He's giving the assignments, the roots, the game plan for action that must take place. But first, he has to remind them and therefore us who we are. They aren't like the other team. They may have very um, similar characteristics in many ways. Both have practiced, both are wearing pads and jerseys. But the other team isn't their team, and they aren't the other team. Who are they? What are they? What, what are we? Besides being God's beloved and being the recipients of God's love, as demonstrated and manifested by Christ as death, burial, and resurrection in our place, they and we are also aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. In a lot of ways, they don't belong on the field. Like a small 1A team from a podunk school located on a crossroads town with one blinking light playing in a 7A championship, they just don't belong. We don't belong. As we think about this world, our citizenship is not here. We are aliens and strangers, sojourners and exiles. That's the name of their team. Not a very exciting one, but, but one that is aptly named, that's for sure. These are words that are used in verse 11. They're used in the Old Testament to refer to people living in a land that was not their own, usually for a temporary amount of time. And it's a precarious thing to live in a land that's not your own, perhaps a different language, certainly a different culture, but not having all the rights of those who are citizens of that land. But for them, they are, they are sojourners and exiles, not by physical geography. They didn't root up their families 
and moved to places named Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The recipients of the letters you'll see in one one. Most of them had grown up there for, for generations. They lived there and had always lived there. But suddenly their town was not their hometown. Something had changed. They knew the streets. They knew the names of the people around them. They knew the, the culture. Perhaps they knew the Roman culture very well. But, but something had changed to them. No longer was Bruton or Pollard or Jay their hometown. Suddenly it was the new heavens and the new earth. Something had happened to them. Something had happened to us that transferred our hometown from here to another place entirely. Do you remember going home from college or when you moved away or gotten married? You go to your parents' home and the, the paint might be the same. Your bedroom door might creak just the way it did when you were growing up. But you know what? It wasn't home anymore, was it? Something had happened. Something had happened to you. And for the believer in Christ who has been born again, this is what happens to us. We are called to live here where God has planted us. And as my grandmother used to say, you have to bloom where you're planted. They are called to live amongst those who don't know the Lord. And so he tells them in, verses, in verse 11, or I think verse 12 rather, he tells them to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. How are they to live now that they live in this area and yet don't belong to this area? How are they then to live? Can they just pack up shop and leave town or, or keep to themselves or not be engaged in culture and society? This, this is not what Peter calls them to. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The word conduct here means way of life. Live your life in a way that is honorable to the Lord. Note, though, that he uses the word Gentiles. But do you know to whom this book is written? Gentile believers. These are Greek speakers. These are traditionally Greek people living in a a Roman culture. And yet now they were part of the church, the new Israel. And Peter now uses language of Gentiles to speak to others outside of the church. It's, It's a really interesting passage. They have a responsibility to live well with unbelievers, and so do we. So think about how we are called to live with those around us. We are either pointing them to Jesus or away to Jesus, away from Jesus. There, there, there seems to be very little neutral ground. And he's saying, look, you must keep your lives, your conduct honorable in a way that will point people to Jesus rather than drive them away from him. Have you ever um, had a fishbowl in your house? We, if you've been to my house, you've seen ours. It's... it's um, rather nasty. Uh, we don't always do real well. With, we're wonderful parents, Lord willing. We're terrible fish owners. Um, and we've, I've personally killed at least six fish. Um, most fish bowls are clear, and you can see into them from all sides. Um, there's no privacy for a betta fish or a goldfish. It just doesn't exist. You, know, you might try to hide behind one of those little plastic plants But in the end, there's no real privacy. And so it is for the believer. 
the world is watching us. And there's really no secret place for the believer. Because even how we act at home, in the hidden places, even there, that affects how we act outside. He tells us to keep our, our, our way of life honorable. Yeah, one pastor had a great illustration of this uh, I heard a long time ago. And it was, if Jesus came back and you were doing X, would that be a really embarrassing place to be when Jesus returned? It's a good litmus test for is it an honorable thing or not. Would it be really bad if Jesus came back right now? If I was thinking, doing, or saying something. We are told in this text in two ways to keep our, our lives in an honorable fashion. And the first that we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Verse 11. We are called to abstain from those things in our hearts which are ungodly. For the believer, we still struggle with the passions of the flesh. We are called to be passionate people. It's going to be passionate about things. That's not what Peter means here. He means the passions, the lust, the things of our hearts that long for the bits that don't glorify God. The flesh here is that part of us that is still in rebellion against God. And every believer has it within him or herself. I look forward to the day when Christ comes again and and that bit of us is taken away. We no longer struggle with temptation, but each and every one of us must be aware that that we deal with temptation in a specific way. Temptation and and fighting the flesh will look different for each one of us. All struggles are common to man, so there's nothing that we struggle with that others don't. But even as you perhaps see your children, one might struggle with uh, the tongue while another just likes to hit people. You know, or one is struggling with, with lust while the other is struggling with X. There's, there, there's difference how, the Lord, how we struggle with our flesh. But whatever way the flesh attacks us, we are called to abstain from those things entirely. Abstain here means to flee from, to be far away from, not to flirt with. We are called to abstain from the passions of our flesh within us, realizing that it is at war with us. You know, there, there are certain things that if you don't mess with it, it's not going to mess with you. I think I'm right in saying that lead paint's one of them. If you don't eat it, sand it, or scrape it, it's generally not going to hurt you, I think. Contact your construction professional. And, and also, asbestos tile. You know, once you, you can cover it up, and it's generally okay, but, but once you start digging it up, that's when you get in trouble. Sin's not like that. That the flesh isn't like that. We, we're certainly called not to stir it up, but, but the, the desires and the passions of the flesh, according to this passage, are warring against us. It is an active thing that we must fight each and every day if we're going to live honorable lives for unbelievers to see us living in a godly way and therefore be pointed to Christ. And when we do not abstain from those passions, we give them all the reason to discredit the glory of Christ. Our flesh is at war with us, according to this passage. And therefore, we are to be at war with it. As the great Puritan, whose name I can't remember once said, we are either killing sin or it is killing us. There are good ways and bad ways to fight the flesh, to to engage in this warfare. Perhaps the worst is to be ignorant or in denial of the battle within us. In the Second World War, um, Russia and uh, Germany signed, uh, it wasn't a treaty, it was a non-aggression pact. 
uh, they were going to leave each other alone. And the Russians were ignorant of the designs of Hitler. And so as they, for months and months and months, were silent against each other, one day, June 22nd, 1941, Operation Barbarossa, the Germans with three million soldiers over a front 2,000 miles long suddenly invaded Russia and almost destroyed the entire country. Russia was ignorant of the danger of the enemy. And how sad is it, how dangerous is it with us when we are ignorant or in denial about the the power of the flesh within us. Oh, I, I don't really have any real temptations. I don't have any real struggles. Those are things we may try to convince ourselves, but it's just not true. And when we deny those things, when we, when we think that we're good, we don't actually struggle with sin, then we are just opening ourselves up to a surprise attack. Another really bad way to, to fight the flesh is, um, is to flirt with sin. You know, I found that in my days, a great way to get stung is to start poking a, a, a beehive. Or, or, or you see a hornet's nest. You know, hornets are really pretty. If you, if you are able to look at a hornet under a glass bowl, they're really pretty. It's amazing the beauty of a yellow jacket or a hornet or, or, or all these terrible things that will tear you apart. But you know, if you play with them, do you know what happens? You get stung. And if you're allergic, you'll die. That's how sin is. It might be fun to poke things, but oftentimes it leads to death. That's what happens when we flirt and we don't abstain. The third thing here, we, oftentimes we wage war using the wrong ammunition. And by that I mean that we are relying on our own strength. Have you ever succeeded fighting sin in your own strength? No. Um, during World War II, uh, the American submarines at the beginning of the war had defective torpedoes. We had the wrong ammunition. It was a bad design. The detonators would not explode. And so the picture, time and time again, was an American sub out in the Pacific. And there would be a choice target, a great battleship, a wonderful destroyer, a huge freighter. And the sub-captain would call for the last bearing. He would call shoot. And four fish would run hot, straight, normal all the way right up to the battleship. And do you know what happened when they hit the battleship? Nothing. They would crush and fall to the ocean floor. They used the wrong ammunition. And do you know what was even worse? When you fire a torpedo out of a sub, you announce your presence. And so all the destroyers and all the escort ships would come and sink the American sub. It happened time and time again. And this is what we do when we seek to fight the flesh in our own strength. We set ourselves up for failure We will fail time and time again. We are called to live in desperate reliance upon the Lord as we fight our flesh. It is waging war against us, and our our tools are not our own flesh. It is not our own strength. It It is our weakness. Our weakness is our greatest tool for fighting the flesh because when we are weak, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 9, in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect, and His grace is sufficient for us. We must rely on Him The result of a successful and fruitful abstaining from sin and waging war against the flesh is that unbelievers will come to know Jesus. There is a connection between our holiness and our profession of faith. There is a connection between our pursuit of the Lord and His holiness and the conversion of unbelievers. 
Now, we cannot convert anybody. And actions alone are not enough to convert anybody. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. But when we live in a way that is honorable and is holy, then we have opportunities to tell others about Jesus. This text tells us in verse 12 that that when they speak evil of you as evildoers, note it doesn't say if, it says when. Part of being a believer is being called to suffer for Christ, of being maligned, of being injured, even when it isn't true. Matthew 5, 11, blessed are those, or blessed are you when when, uh, others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Mark 13, 12 through 13, and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But I think the clearest, Philippians 1, 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. In AD 64, the Roman Emperor Nero, his his prize burned Rome. The city of Rome burned, destroying a huge percentage of the city. And Nero needed a scapegoat. And do you know who got blamed? The Christians. They had nothing to do with with the fire. They hadn't said it. In fact, history has proven that time and time again. In fact, some think that Nero actually said it himself and blamed the, the Christians. People will speak ill of us and evil of us, even when we do what is right. But 1 Peter 3 verse 16 says, Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Because here's the thing, that when the world sees us living in a different way, they'll know there's something different about us. It's interesting, verse 12 says that they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. This echoes Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's the thing, people cannot glorify God unless they're converted. Hebrews 11, 6 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. So if Gentiles, if unbelievers are glorifying God, it means they've been converted. The day of visitation here probably refers to the day of their conversion. The applications here are endless. But I want you to think about your life in the areas especially in which your actions, motives, and speech are, are, are especially obvious and exposed to others. How about on the sports field? Either for those who play or those uh, parents. You know, oftentimes it can be the parents who are... I, I'm entering in t-ball world. This is a new world to me. And it's amazing how heated t-ball can get. Uh, when, the, when the other parents are being ungodly... Are, are you saying the same things? Or is there a difference? In your workplace, is there a difference when others start speaking ill of the boss? Within your family, do, do, your, do your children, do, do, does your wife, does your husband see you only as an angry person who cannot be pleased? Or do they see Christ through your love? 
living in an honorable way amongst believers and unbelievers alike, but especially unbelievers, leads folks to question what in the world is going on here. And that's not enough. They have to hear the name of Jesus. There's an old quip, um, preach every day and when necessary use words. Have you heard this? It's incomplete. It's, it's not a good phrase. I, I know what the person meant by this, but, but the reality is that no one was converted by watching our actions. At some point, they must hear the gospel. But we have opportunities to live in such a way that we have a right, an opportunity to say, hey, let me tell you about the one who's transformed my life. I fail all the time. But Jesus is good. Let me tell you about my Savior. May we be faithful in doing so, and may the Lord grant us fruit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ has um, lived perfectly and lived in an honorable way uh, through and through, so that we who are wretches might have salvation. Use us, Lord. Use us, Lord, to to bring others to faith. Use us, Lord. Um, Help us as we seek to abstain from the passions of our flesh and to fight the fight against our flesh. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.